Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings, everyone. This is a special late night edition of The Way with Fanoa. Um, I am actually really excited about this conversation. Well, I'm always excited about people I talk to because I get to talk to such awesome people. But this is somebody that I've actually chatted with, I don't know, for Oh, I can't even remember how long it's been now, at least a couple of years now. I'm back and forth about a variety of issues and, and, and news and media and things going on. Excellent writer, um, activist in his own right. Um, Drew, how are you doing this evening? I'm all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, you're doing all right. Well, that, I mean, happy new year. Um, you know, new year, new you, that type of thing. Uh, so, so let's just get right into it. So, I mean, here we are. You know, I know when we had conversations during the, the the election cycle, did you think we'd be here? Um, I certainly hope we wouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> Definitely. I'd, I'd say if there was sort of an indication of how I thought things were going at the end, um, I actually, um, I was not a huge uh, Clinton backer, but mm-hmm. um, definitely started trying to help her campaign out after she won the nomination. Um, I drove from D.C. to North Carolina to try and canvas the weekend oh, wow. election because I was that worried that it wasn't going to uh, go that well. And unfortunately, those those worries were pretty justified. Um, so, I mean, I'm not surprised, but it, it still is a little shocking, just the fact that it happened. Right, right, definitely. Um, what were some of your thoughts, like from just, just, just your, your time in your little bit of time in North Carolina, what were some of, what was like, what was your experience like? Um, it, it was really funny because it seemed as if the organizational, um, strength for the Clinton campaign was really evident. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, I was in a rural part of North Carolina, just over the, uh, the border, uh, from Virginia and the the setup with the the local um, churches in the area and community organizations and everything was was really great um, and there was nothing to be seen of that from the opposite side um, and I think that's where a lot of traditional you know politicos got this election wrong in that they assumed that the ground game that the Clinton camp had and that the Obama camp had beforehand um, would would overcome sort of a haphazard mm-hmm. uh, approach from Trump. But um, Trump's sort of personal appeal um, proved to be a more effective mobilizing force than um, I think anyone really anticipated. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I think... I think that is definitely, you know, accurate. Like as we, as we, you know, I like to, you know, always bring it back to, as we look forward and consider like, 
how do we as individuals, as whether you're considering yourself a resistance, you know, cell or whatever the case may be, how do we begin to like really engage as we look forward towards not just the midterms and special elections coming up this year and 2017 special elections where they may be in 2018 midterms and state local elections and, and, you know, 2020 down the line. But how do we how do we start to change maybe the way in which. Or can we even change the way in which we engage in the political process as people? I mean, we have, you know, approximately half of the eligible voting electorate actually engaged in this election. And 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 unfortunately, when when we do have the lower numbers, it does not bode well for for Democrats, for the left. So so can we even I mean, is that even possible for us to change? Like, can we even engage people better or differently um, to get? you know, a different result going forward? Um, I, I, I think we can. It's just a matter of if there's the political will to do so and mm-hmm. who's going to stand in our way. Um, I think later on we can hopefully talk about um, Senator Schumer and the new slash old Democratic leadership in the 115th Congress. Um, but I think that Bernie either, you know, on purpose or just sort of out of his own um, personal approach to politics laid a pretty decent groundwork for how to do that mm-hmm. uh, in that his message was very simple. He stayed on it everywhere he went and he was an oppositional candidate, even though he was running for the party that had held the white house for the past eight years. Right. Uh, and I really think that that sort of approach is what is, is ultimately needed. Uh, the status quo is not going to cut it anymore. Um, if if uh, someone like Hillary Clinton, with all the resources that she had, could lose to someone with as haphazard a campaign as Trump's, and with all the things he said, I think it's a pretty damning statement about the future of that sort of third-way neoliberal approach to quote-unquote left-wing or leftist politics in America. No, I agree. And actually, we can could, we could talk about that now because, like, I think what you're bringing up is a great point. There is a, There definitely was the old way of doing business, and there's certainly a new feeling about what needs to be done, and there is a tension. I mean, we do seem to have, in some ways, at least the semblance of people kind of getting behind what some have called the Bernie Sanders wing um, in some some sense, you know, Chuck Schumer, uh, uh, Harry Reid, and others have endorsed, for example, uh, uh, Representative Keith Ellison for DNC uh, chair. Um, there, you know, Bernie's been given some, you know, position. I can't even remember the engagement. I forget exactly the exact title that he's been given in terms of Senate leadership. Um, but then, then there does still seem to be. Like, it just seems like maybe if we give the kids a little bit of what they wanted or increase their allowance, you know, they'll act right for the next round. It doesn't really seem to be this real willingness to change. Because like you said, if, if you have a candidate like Secretary Clinton um, with, with, the, with the resources, with the, the name recognition, with, the, with, the, with the, the Clinton brand. I mean, the Clinton, the Clinton you know, political machine has, has paved the way for so many officials and lawmakers and politicians at the national, state, and local level nationwide. They have such an intricate network of donors and, and special friends and things like that. 
And if for them to have lost in this way and for it to be so like for no one to have, well, not no one, but for most of the, you know, the who's who of analysts, et cetera, to not have seen it coming, um, you, you, one would think that there would really be be a, a, a moment of introspection, at least some time to really sit and think about what did we do wrong and how can we do better? Or maybe if we involve some of these other people, but it seems like there's been a doubling down <laughs> on, 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 on bad ideas on the same people who made, you know, certain mistakes or made miscalculations or whatever. And, but I think, I think this is a good point to have this conversation about the new versus the old, you know, Chuck Schumer, there, there are issues, you know, with even with him and the way he wants to do things, despite, you know, seemingly being open to change, right? Um, I, I would say, I guess, a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one being that I think we can learn a lot from the GOP's experience over the last eight years. Um, they were in the spot that we were in right now in 2008 and 2012. They did their postmortems. They released it. They said they were going to learn. They didn't. Um, the only reason why they won this time around is because of essentially a hostile takeover mm-hmm. from Trump and his band of, you know, neo-Confederate misfits. So I think something similar would have to happen on the Democratic side in order to get that level of change. I don't think it's going to come organically from within which is, is disappointing, but at the same time, I think it also opens up possibilities to finding new and younger leadership outside of the party that can uh, maybe sort of co-opt things the way that, that Trump did. Right. Right. I think, I think and we're starting to see that to some extent. I mean, when we look at what's happening on the state and local uh, um, um, level when we're looking at the various races and the counties across the country for dim party leadership i know we've had a we had a couple of people here in fulton county where i am in atlanta there was i'm trying to think i think it was brevard county i'm trying to think of which county it was in florida where basically the entire you know leadership team is now uh basically bernie super volunteers from that from that from that area so 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 we are starting to see some of that in terms of actually you know I think people are learning like you got to it's not enough to just, you know, show up and run candidates. But we also have to be at those seats where those decisions are being made, you know, at the precinct level, at the county level where these decisions are being made. And we're talking about internal process. You know, there was a lot of I know you you've done different degrees of coverage of all this stuff. But, you know, there were different complaints during the primary process about the way the Democratic Party handled things internally. But it's it's I, I was talking with Lucy Flores one day and she was just saying, you know, I've been in these meetings, though. And when we need people there to be able to vote, to make decisions, we don't have the people there to, to, to have these conversations. And then down the road, people are upset. But I think now people are saying like, hey, we have to be in those rooms, having those conversations, raising these issues and demanding that the process is better even. Uh, absolutely. I think sort of. The the uh, sound of it might not be great, but we need a Tea Party at the left. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, mm-hmm. the Tea Party was great at getting into school boards, getting into the smallest corners of local government first, and working their way up. And that's why we have, I believe, thirty six um, state legislators being controlled by the GOP right now. Um, it seems like the Dems, for all they do do not see, don't want to play small ball. 
um, they're always sort of going towards the the big picture, big um, big name um, appointments, and they don't really right. focus much on the local stuff. We have no bench. Um, Absolutely. There's there's no a personal example. Of this is from where I'm from in uh, Cincinnati. We had a city councilman named P.G. Sittenfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, very popular, young, about 32 now, I think. Um, got more votes as a city council member than either mayoral candidate did in, I think, 2015. And that was out of uh, uh, a open field for the city council candidates. So, like, he got more votes with people choosing from, like, 16 or 17 people mm-hmm. than the mayoral candidates did after one of two. Um and being down ballots. He was a very popular guy. He ran against Strickland for the Democratic nomination against Rob Portman. Right. He got zero support from the state Democrats who were dead set on throwing the 70-something Strickland back into a battle and he had very little chance of winning. Um, and there was no thought to, well, hey, even if Sittenfeld loses – it's great to get him national exposure and sort of build that young millennial wing of the party. It was more just sort of very short-term thinking um, and very sort of buddy-buddy uh, thinking. It was just kind of like that's the way things were. Um, this is who the donors wanted, and this is who they were going to get, uh, regardless of, of his chances in the general election. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just think like, like you just said, I just want to go back to the one part where you said we have no bench. We, we don't, um, even when you're looking like, it just seems like there's been a recycling of, you know, people's aids and, 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 you know, special names and, and different people like actually developing that talent at the state and local level. I mean, I, I had the opportunity to talk with David Daly a while back who wrote, um, rat, Fucked about redistricting um, and and basically the effort coming out of the 2010 election to 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 change you know the the, the game and how Republicans led by Karl Rove and others you know set out and they they I mean they had a, they had a plan in place they invested in you know certain targeted local level races in the midterm elections and they were surprised and he was saying when he was talking to people uh, Dave, David Daly was saying when he was talking to people like they were surprised that there wasn't as much of you know opposition or really effort because people just assume that you know this is a safe seat we're going to have our seat blah 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 and that same effort that same investment in down ballot candidates at the state and local level even in terms of you know lesser known congressional seats has not necessarily been the same you know Democrats have not had the same focus in that manner and investing and making sure that there are people to come up through the ranks to fill these positions and and so I, I think that's a crucial point particularly when we're talking about how we need new life in the party where are we going to get it at because we haven't taken well they haven't taken the time to nurture it and and, and and but there does seem to be this new wave coming in demanding you know to kind of bust through and uh, be heard. Yeah, one thing that frustrated me to no end during the primary campaign mm-hmm. um, r- related to the Sanders side of things was mm-hmm. the way that his campaign um, treated John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, okay. I thought that that was the biggest missed opportunity um, for the Sanders campaign to reach out 
and cultivate new talent sort of um, a la the brand new Congress initiative that came out after his primary loss. Right. But Fetterman was the epitome of sort of a, a Sanders left-wing independent. Um, working class, um, very much focused on both uh, racial and uh, financial equality, um, tough as nails, could really um, sort of reach out to um, both black and white Pennsylvanians. Um, and he was really big on Bernie. He really got his message and he really wanted him to embrace him. And there mm-hmm. was never any any contact. I believe one reporter asked Bernie if he was planning on reaching out. And right. He basically said, like, I, I don't really know the guy. It was like it was it was so close too. I I think and I think having talked to other folks, you know, I think they did very poorly in terms of down ballots with with earlier primaries, right? Like I absolutely agree with that about Fetterman. I know we talked about that as 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 a, as a missed opportunity during the primary, and I think that there were other examples. There were other people who were running, and it's not that Bernie necessarily could be there. Like with every single person who said they were running as a Bernie crat, you know. But at the same time, like Fetterman was someone that was actually like kind of high profile that was getting attention and stuff. And you're right. The fact that the campaign, there wasn't at least a conversation, a five minute conversation. So even when that happened, when that interview happened, so that at least Bernie knew the name. Right. I mean, it's just like, how do you how are you campaigning here? And, and how do you not how do you guys not know about this guy? And, and I, I just think that, you know, on the flip side, like just just to talk about that, because a lot of people who support Bernie Sanders and I'm not one of them get really um, reluctant to offer any criticism or, or, or real meaningful critique of the campaign and the process. And and, I, and, I, and again, if we're talking about this is going to be the impetus to help drive the party forward, we got to kind of look at that side, too, to see like where kind of things were, were not quite right. And I really do think there was a lot of great information that came out of folks who were grassroots volunteers who were outside of the traditional campaign model, had really good information. They had connections to folks like a Fetterman, right? Or maybe they had like, you know, information. I know like something that was sent to us on one of the social media pages I man- managed was this, it was like Black Elders for Bernie or something like that, right? And it was this round table of of 60 plus, you know, 60, 70 plus black, you know, it's about five or six of them from California. And this was like well ahead of the California primary. It was put together, it was very well produced, but they were talking about, you know, their experiences, their, their knowledge of him. Cause that was one of the big, you know, where's he been at? He's never been in our communities, blah, blah, blah. But this is, this is that, that generation that we're saying would not support him at all talking about it. And we kept trying to find a way to get it in the hands of different people. We're like, you guys need to be pushing this. You need to share it. And we could never get it to the right person that had access, you know, to even look at it. And I, and I, and I, and I know there's a lot going on and stuff in a campaign, but, but like when you're waging an insurgency, which is basically what that was and what we continue to see, you can't like ignore your, the grassroots people beyond the $27 donations. And unfortunately um, that happened. And, and I think there were other areas that, that, that were shortcomings, but I do, I do think that you touched on a good point in terms of someone like a Fetterman, like those should have been, and I mean, he did have, you know, Zephyr Teachout and Pramila Jayapal and, and 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 a few others, but like there were quite a few people like a Fet- like Fetterman who who did not necessarily get um, even the name, even I guess his name mentioned, you know, in a in a conversation. But I guess that's strategy, not necessarily a good strategy, but yeah. 
I think looking back on Bernie's re- amazingly successful campaign, let's not forget that he was polling at 1% or less when he started. Um, what, what that campaign did was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But looking forward, I feel like we need to be looking at the Sanders campaign and future sort of more insurgent campaigns um, from perspective of the way that Democrats now have to look at the general election um, and Russian hacking interference. Right. Okay. A lot of people complaining about the DNC, how it's corrupt, how they screwed over Bernie. That's all well and good. What are you going to do about it? Mm. Going to be Mm -hmm. there in 2018 and 2020. So you're going to have to deal with it again. What do we learn from this experience so that the next time that can be mitigated earlier? Um, I, I, I just don't see it, – it's part of the land. Um, that's the lay of the land is that that is going to be an obstacle to um, gaining power in the Democratic Party. People don't want to give it up. Um, and so the deck is going to be stacked against you. How you prepare for that is the important thing. And how do we prepare for that? What do you what do you from you from you from your work and your experience? What do you see? You know, how do you see us being able to do that? Um, the the best way that I can see in order to go about doing that, um, at least in a uh, to a greater degree than we did in 2016, is to get people on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have the Bernie Crat type folks working as legislative aides and, and working on, on local campaigns and getting into the weeds so that when big decisions are made, they're in the room. Right. Right. Um, definitely. There's, there's a place for working outside of the system and, and a place for working inside of it. They both need to be robust campaigns if you're going to pull something like this off. So it's, it's great to give you $27. It's great to to go to rallies and to you know protest marches, but you also need people in the smoke filled rooms. You need people to be able to carry that message to the people that need to hear it. Um, and I think that's a place where we can really uh, grow a lot in the next few years. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about you know there are different activities, but we got to start leveraging our ability to do multiple things. And the inside outside game, I know there are a lot of people who are just like, no, just leave them all alone. I mean, I understand the feeling why people say we need to leave, you know, just just leave the Democratic Party, let it abandon it. But at the same time, considering the way our system is currently set up, I mean, if we want to be able to move legislation, we want to be able to do certain things. There needs that, that you need to have you know, the seats and whether it's a state house, whether it's your city council, Congress, you need to have the seats to be able to to make it happen or, or be able to negotiate with the other side to do it one way or the other. But you still got to work with people that maybe you don't want to or would prefer not to. That's just the nature of the way things are. So I think that we, I do see that. I think that this, this, this burning wing is starting to get a better feel for the lay of the land. And it seems like, you know, you and I are having this conversation, other people are having these conversations. And, and while, you know, there's the big protests, you know, uh, 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 marches coming up in a couple of weeks, I'm starting to see action steps coming, you know, before and after that. And I think that's what is really good, you know, having like almost guideposts, you know, not, and not just, you know, how do we resist Trump, but how do we also 
at the the best way we can still address these other, you know, significant issues that are permeating across the board. Um, so what are you working on currently, if you don't mind chatting a little bit about that? Um, well, I'm working on a, a couple things. Um, my, my blog has kind of gone by the wayside in recent, uh, uh my, okay. um, I got a job at a, um, HIV advocacy organization here in DC called AIDS United. Oh, uh, nice. So I've been doing a lot of work around um, healthcare reform and basically trying to pick up the pieces of uh, this disastrous election. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My other side project is working with a group called Shoulder to Shoulder. Uh, okay. It's a group also based in D.C., but has partners all across the country that focuses on building interfaith um, community and dialogue to try and uh, form resistance and opposition to Islamophobic uh, sentiment and activities. So we membership, including, you know, a bunch of different religious organizations, uh, individual churches and, and synagogues and such, um, but just trying to, to create a firewall between um, the hate that's, that's emerging and those that are feeling the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so just thinking about your work with with the with with with, with the AIDS organization and the, you said healthcare reform. This whole conversation that's happening right now um, seems to be directly relevant then to to maybe what's going on with your organization and what you've been doing. Uh, sure. What do you want to know? Um, <laughs> I'm my best to throw it out there. Oh man. I mean, you know, we're, 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 you know, the conversation, I see people saying things like, well, the affordable care act isn't affordable. So, and, 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 and no, there are real issues. I know my, my, my mother has, 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 this is the first year she would be able to afford a plan um, available to her since it's, since the ACA has existed the last few, several years or whatever. And she's just like, okay, so I finally can get a plan. There's finally one cheap enough for me to get but now they're going to just get rid of the whole thing. So I, so I know that like, there, there are different levels that people are looking at, you know, what's coming down the pipeline with this. And just like, so how does it affect one? How does it affect the work that you guys are doing directly? Just even this, the hints, you're right there in DC, even just, just the hint that they're going to do it again um, or they're going to go for the repeal again. How does that directly affect you guys and what you're doing? And then uh, we can go from there. Um, I, I sure want to start out by saying that, I mean, I, I really do understand and sympathize with people who had, uh, troubles with the sometimes, uh, uh, inaptly named Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. uh, finding a way to afford the coverage. For a lot of people, it was, uh, very beyond the pale and, um, it did not benefit them in the way that they hoped it would. That being said, the Affordable Care Act was an unequivocal good. There is no uh-huh. look at it wherein we are in, we aren't in a much better place now than we were in 2010. Um, and from, from my money, the two biggest reasons for that are Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. and the uh, ban on preventing uh, people from getting coverage for having pre-existing conditions. Those two right. things alone are, are astounding. Um, and we have a situation where we have a little over 20 million people 
who have insurance now that didn't when the ACA was first implemented. And if the GOP plan goes through, the number of people that lose insurance could be as high as 29 million. Um, people are going right. to die. People are going to die. Um, and the blood is going to be on the GOP's hands if there isn't something that we do about it immediately. Um, not down the road, not some, some battle that we can worry about after midterms right now because they are getting this done and they're getting it done fast. They just put a, uh, they started off a budget resolution yesterday. Uh, John Enzi from uh, Wyoming put it out. Mm-hmm. We started a process called reconciliation. It's a budget procedure where essentially the Senate can um, make alterations to the budget in an effort to sort of reduce the deficit. Um, and by doing so, they can choose where those cuts come from. And they are targeting um, the Affordable Care Act. So without any sort of um, chance for opposition or filibuster or anything from the Democrats, they will be able to repeal big swaths of the ACA potentially by as early as as mid-spring. So this is something they are dead set on doing, and they have no replacement plan. They got nothing. Absolutely nothing. They have a few sort of um, hodgepodge plans that are, are more so in the either realm of the completely unfeasible or sort of the, the more Heritage Foundation-esque um, theoretical plans. Um, but nothing that could be implemented uh, in the next year or, or even two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that people need to be ready for the fact that things are about to get bad really, really fast when it comes to healthcare, um, unless something drastic is done. And at this point, I honestly don't know if that's even possible, but we have to try. Um, because I, I understand the, the people who want single payer. I personally would love single payer. Um, but you, you can't get to single payer by going backwards. Right, right. That's where we're going right. now. It's, it's, I've, I've always been baffled by the argument that you need something horrible to happen in order to spur on positive change. Mm-hmm. Like the sort of, well, Trump has to, if Trump wins, then we'll really shake things up. It's like, it, incremental change still gets you where you need to go. And at a certain point, even if you want to make a big leap, it's better to start off closer to where you want to end up than farther back. So, um, I mean, I think the ACA is a, it or is and probably soon what will was be um, was be Lord uh, will be a, um, a, a great sort of stepping stone that we can look forward to in terms of building um, a new coalition to create more affordable health care. But um, where Trump's taking us is a bad bad place. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like what you said about what 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 I think is so important that people don't understand. I said this earlier when I was having another discussion was, you know, what you were saying about about people who like yes, there were the issues the AC and a lot of that also has to do with like you know the, the, the exchanges and the insurance agencies themselves, like things that aren't necessarily the 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 health insurance portion, but like 
the way the insurance industry has interacted with this whole thing. That's a whole nother conversation. But I think what you're saying about people who were given coverage, who did not have it before, who will lose it. I mean, in the Medicaid expansion, because, you know, down here, we, we didn't ha- we don't have Medicaid expansion. So you already have a struggling system that has tried to overcompensate um, without Medicaid expansion. And now you're talking about sending all these people back into this already struggling, crumbling system. So and you'll see that in many places. One of the things that caught my attention, I know we had conversations um, probably back when I was still in West Virginia, you know, seeing Senator Manchin, you know, well, I'm not and I'm not going to be for this and I'm not going to be for that. A lot of people don't realize, you know, when you talk about like, I remember, I don't know if it was the Daily Show. I remember a couple of years ago, they did the video about would people be for the ACA versus Obamacare. And like people were like so positive when you called the ACA or very negative when you called Obamacare. And it's just like these politicians are playing games with people's lives. Just like you like, just like you just said, people will die. I mean, if you're not getting actual treatment, for conditions that are that are perfectly treatable, right? When when you have the access to the care and the medication that's necessary, because we're also talking about people's ability to get their medications and stuff. I mean, also like diabetes, for example, right? If you're not if you're not able to get your insulin, if you're insulin dependent, you're not able to get your insulin, you're not able to get your treatment. High blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure, you're not able to get your just basic stuff, basic care. That's that means that then you're going to be seeing the emergency room, and then that means that that's even greater cost. We're so worried about costs and fixing the system and not not burdening people. But but you're you're creating even th- 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 this the way Republicans are going because they don't even have a viable plan. They 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 want to get rid of it. They want to get rid of this, and th- they're wording it really to make it sound like they're giving people choices and options. But for these people that will be kicked off of insurance, there aren't any choices or options, and it's it's kind of it's not kind of it's very insane. And you know, seeing someone like Joe Manchin, who I have tons of thoughts about. <laughs> Tons of thoughts. We both. <laughs> um, it. I, I. I think that. What when you look at the fact that Republicans had six years, six years to come up with a plan, mm-hmm. and they got bupkis. Yes, that is absolutely. Ridiculous. And it's not like this wasn't on the radar. They haven't shut up about repealing Obamacare since the day that man signed it into law mm-hmm. and they have no solution because they don't provide solutions. They provide outrage and behind all of that outrage is just craven greed. That's really all it is. If you look at every single part of the Republican healthcare platform, it is all about benefiting mainly the top 10% of Americans Mm-hmm. Um, all their plans from health savings accounts to um, to to the reduction of Medicaid to everything else um, to privatizing Medicare, all this stuff is designed to help out people who are in the upper middle class and the upper class. That's it. If you can't afford a 401k, you're not going to be able to afford an HSA. HSA. Not at all. It's it's unrealistic to to expect. Um, to burden individuals with these decisions that should be taken care of by the people they elect them. So, um, like, I, I just think we're we're in for a a rough uh, couple years, um, but we can we can get through it as long as we essentially don't 
we don't allow the Republicans to do what Trump tweeted out either this morning or yesterday. And that is to make the Democrats own it. That's what they will try and do. Whatever bad shit comes down the pipeline, pardon my French, um, the Republican Party will try and pin back on the Democrats as a natural failure of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Even though they are the ones who created the problem. So from a messaging standpoint, the Democratic Party has to get on its ass. And this, oh God, the latest thing that just came out with today, the Make America Sick Again. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Whoever came up with that slogan needs needs to be sent on sabbatical for for a couple of months. Like, like their their whole their whole point of the, the 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 slogan is to sort of point out that Trump's going to make America sick again with his um, repeal of Obamacare. But all people hear is, "Oh, Chuck Schumer wants to make America sick again." That's fucked up. Like, there's. There's there's no way in which the Trump troll army and Republican messages don't completely flip that on its head. And it baffles me that the the Democratic Party can't see that. It's like right in front of their face. Like I it it really does. It when I saw that this morning on, on Twitter, I was just like, I'm I'm not easily surprised with a lot of the ineptitude from some of their social media campaigns but even this was kind of a wow moment um it's just i i don't think we'll be able to count on the uh the minds of uh campaign staffers to come up with the next big thing in terms of mobilizing public support for the aca and healthcare. um doesn't look like it's going to happen. Yeah, I um, I agree with you. I mean, it it, it, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. <laughs> um, but I'm I, I I'm 